Hi, this is Midwesteration, and I'm Freya Bernson. This week, I had the opportunity to interview Bill Minter, the Director of Land Management and Assistant Professor in the Sustainability and Environmental Education Department at Mary Lee Environmental Learning Center of Goshen College. A little aside here, I have to confess I haven't shared much about myself in previous episodes as I've been learning the podcasting ropes, if you will. That said, I would be remiss if I didn't mention my connection to Mary Lee. The place is nothing short of magical, and that is 100% due to the people who work there. I had the absolute pleasure of working as a field assistant to David Miller during my summer breaks from high school. The bird banding and insect collecting work he entrusted teenage me with is totally the reason I've pursued a career in natural resources. Having such an amazing mentor was life-changing to say the least, and I am forever grateful for that experience. In recent years, I've also been lucky to return as a volunteer with the bird banding crew. There are few things that are more delightful than (laughs) meeting a, a crew of bird nerds in the woods at dawn. I'm serious. Now, Bill is another one of those fantastic Mary Lee people. He's been a part of Mary Lee literally since I can remember. The opportunity to interview him was wonderful, and I am very, very thankful. This was my first indoor interview for the show, so there are some sounds from the building um, we met in. We are masked and socially distanced, of course. So with that, let's get to the interview. So, I am sitting at Mary Lee with Bill Minter, and uh, we are, we're going to talk about his work um, at Mary Lee. I guess I'd just like to, to start uh, with, with asking you to kind of talk about who you are and what your connection to this site is. So. Okay, I'm happy. Well... Bria, once again, welcome back to Mary Lee, knowing a bit of your history here and your formative education years. So I'm glad to uh, be in conversation with you. So uh, I uh, actually first connected with Mary Lee uh, in about 1981 when Goshen College was given this almost 1,200-acre property by benefactors of Lee and Mary Jane Reef who are now deceased. And at that point, I was asked to actually come in as Goshen College took it over, give them a bit of an overview of kind of their their, uh, land resources, potentially what could be done as they looked at their their mission. And so those were just some brief visits and some reports. Uh, But I stayed in touch over over the, I would say, almost decade or so, uh, and as things worked out, I ended up uh, becoming their first official director of land management as this was developing back in the the, um, late 80s and early 90s. So I've been with uh, Mary Lee now in my 30th year as director of land management. Uh, I also, as part of faculty of Ocean College, serve as uh, Associate Professor of Environmental Science. So I teach also several courses 
uh, all field-based in terms of field lab courses that would also be here at Mary Lee. So my broad responsibility is to carry out specifically one component of the three parts of Mary Lee's mission, and that's to identify, uh, restore, manage, monitor uh, ecosystems that are representative of uh, Northeast Indiana. And so by virtue of just the amazing diversity of soils uh, we have here in the almost 1,200 acres, that clearly reflects what had been and the potential of the diversity of ecosystems, and that means a diversity of plants and a diversity of animals. And so that's really been my charge over 30 years. Beside uh, teaching what I do and doing what I teach in terms of a more uh, uh, formal collegiate level uh, over the past 20 years of those 30 years. Nice, yeah. No, I mean, that's a wonderful history and just being able to to be with the same land for for a, that long of a time it's just you you've really been able to to see the the changes that you've been in charge of over that time and um, like you said like um, I have been here a, a few times in the past you know couple of decades mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I just uh, um, and I, I wasn't even involved in, in any kind of restoration pre- here, um, and so uh, I, I mean, just the stuff that Mary Lee does, uh, or or what you you all do, is is just amazing when you when you read about it. Yeah, and so it's really a story of the land, and you just shared you've been a part of that story, and that's ultimately. I think Mary Lee's overarching mission to connect people to the story of the land or at least give them uh, an experience that allows them to say, oh, I maybe could connect with the land I have or special places that I enjoy visiting other places but have a kind of a deeper sense of being part of that story at that point. And you've shared just a bit a bit of that in your own involvement and we're grateful to know that part of that mission is being fulfilled no, that's, that's, that's awesome I mean it's just it's such a such a special place um, and uh, so so in our pre-interview communication um, you mentioned your work in um, knitting together the landscape in a portion of, of the property. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, uh, the, the Northern High Lake area. And uh, mm-hmm. would you like to kind of talk about, like expand on that idea that you had shared with me? I think that's just such a neat, neat approach <laughs> or a neat mm-hmm. way to look at it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I use the analogy and I've used this figuratively as, as an object lesson in in my class is I actually bring in my class the baby quilt for my daughter, my one and only daughter that my wife made, to try to have students, and so I use this now in my response to you, to think about a landscape as a fabric that's made up of many patches. And they're typically very diverse type of patterns, and those patches or those 
quilt squares are stitched together and held together by fabrics at this point. And so that's a good image for me to think about a fabric of the landscape and recognizing over its history, and I'm talking about the human history, that fabric has, has changed and evolved in terms of its natural cycle, but as humans have become more engaged with that in many different levels, and of course, typically when we think about, quote, restoration or active engagement with, with the landscape in that way, we think at that time of European history being the most significant changes, recognizing more and more of native cultures were certainly a significant part, but in terms of significant changes. And so that fabric, you know, since in this area, since the 18, mid-1810s, after uh, the displacement of the Potawatomi Indians from this area, uh, uh, that certainly that stitching has started to pull apart uh, in terms of the level of human engagement and of course we typically call it disturbance but as you're aware as an ecologist disturbance doesn't mean that's all bad mm -hmm. but it's such a kind of an out of the historic frame of natural disturbance that this stitching has pulled apart and are spraying and so these blocks become more isolated so we can think about fragmentation on the landscape mm -hmm literally uh, in terms of different systems. But this kind of figurative stitching has kind of has pulled apart and frayed. And so one of the things I thought of, and it's not new to me, but it's been, an, an, I think, an evolving concept over the past, you know, 20, 30 years, certainly in my involvement with it, of looking at interacting with a landscape such as what I've described as a way of starting to tighten up and put back the stitching so this patterns can start to come back together. And of course, when we have strong uh, uh, interaction by virtue of figurally stitches with these, with these blocks and this figurative um, quilt, we start to have strength and resiliency to what are more natural ecosystem processes, but I would contend in knowing there's still conversational me with the changing climate. And so here's a new thing to think about, well, how is kind of pulling the stitching back together in this figurative quilt of a landscape that we're working with, how is that going to be impacted by a changing climate? And of course, we don't know uh, yeah. that. We're, we're trying to be prepared and have the flexibility. And so within the context of that image, um, uh, certainly within, I would say, starting the last 20 years of my 30 years, thinking about, okay, I've worked at these isolated spots because, as you well know, of Mary Lee, by virtue of its diversity, also is reflective of a lot of different small areas. So we don't have big, huge landscapes of prairies or woods or wetlands, even historically because of the soils, but certainly with, with human, human interaction since European uh, settlement. So I you know, had originally worked at kind of these small little areas, uh, really mostly to, to support education. 
Um, maybe they weren't most pristine, but they certainly gave a good opportunity for groups involved in education to see what was occurring and what could occur with diversity, you know, whether it's flowers or animal habitats. So within the area that we kind of previously uh, had discussed, uh, there's an area kind of in the core of Mary Lee, probably 150 acres, I would say right now, that I've taken these kind of small projects that were scattered within that area that kind of started to stitch them together figuratively. And so maybe that meant an area that had been wetland that I restored, and then I had uh, the easy pickings of, quote, restoring or recreating a prairie and an upland cropland ecosystem. But that in-between space where it's not dry and it's not wet, it's what I call liminal, L-I-M-I-N-A-L. I don't know if that's a new concept, but it's this in-between space. And of course, ecologically, between ecotones, boy, that's powerful in terms of diversity. But it's not dry and it's not wet. And so I'll just give you an example of an ecosystem I would say would fit in there is kind of what we call a sedge meadow. You know, sometimes we call this wet prairie, maybe a wet one, but it's a bit different at that point. So that would be just an example within this area of these places where I'm kind of now working at the in-between of these blocks and and, um, projects I've worked within over the decades. Once again, figuratively kind of fill in and put the stitches back in. So this pattern of what is now they call, we call landscape ecology. So you can get a PhD in landscape ecology. Uh, Thinking a bit more about the whole at that point. And so with that, we've got a diversity of ecosystems uh, that have, we've worked with and tried to enhance and kind of put on a little bit of different trajectory and what where they were at when they were in farmed and active agriculture at this point. So I'll certainly talk more and more specific, but that's kind of the bigger picture I think you're asking about. Yeah, yeah that's absolutely, yeah. Uh, um, and that's a beautiful way to describe it. And uh, because I think, um, especially for folks who aren't, like they appreciate nature, but they don't necessarily work in the field, being able to visualize something more familiar and exactly, 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 right, right. And so that's for Mary Lee. I mean, I'm explaining my own way, but it doesn't have to be explained that way. But for Mary Lee, that's ultimately its mission, its education, is help people mm-hmm. <laughs> connect. <laughs> to the world and God's creation around them in a way that resonates with them. But you've got to be able to, you can't make an assumption about what they understand or what their experiences are. So trying to, to, to tell a story that resonates with them that is, oh, I can connect with that, but then bring them along a bit and say, oh, now I can see things a little bit differently. Exactly. Uh, yeah, no, uh, Mary Lee, like this, this property, when you look at the map, um, is really interesting because we are in a, a pretty rural county, Noble County in Indiana, um, 
but Mary Lee is right next to a couple, or sort of between a couple small communities, mainly Bear Lake and then a little bit to, to the west. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it is, like you said, like just very diverse in soils, but then in the shape of, of, the, of the property, those uh, almost 1,200 acres. And uh, I think um, that, that definitely adds to just that whole um, complexity of, of what you're, you're doing here and trying to, to restore and, um, and educate about. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so with that, um, what, I mean, what are some of the, the challenges that you're, you're kind of faced with as far as um, restoring these, these ecosystems that you're, you're trying to knit back together? Yeah, yeah. Well, some you certainly would be familiar with. And that point is recognizing by virtue of certainly the, the impacts that, once again, I'm referencing Hume, uh, European settlement because those are the most significant, long-lasting with industrialization and the technologies that were used. But with those type of uh, engagements of humans needing to live on the land and support their families, in this context it's agriculture, mm-hmm. a little bit of surface mining in terms of gravel pits mm-hmm. up on some of these glacial esters, certainly at this point, is recognizing with that and then a changing globalization of how we interact with other countries in invasive plant species. Mm-hmm. And I'm certainly well familiar with that. And so we live in a new age and we're not going to go back to the pristine times. Yeah. And so recognizing that is going to be a chronic condition with us. Mm-hmm. And so how can I, as I engage with this, recognize that from the past, and even in my time professionally, as I encourage people to plant uh, bush honeysuckle and autumn olive mm-hmm. for wildlife as part of the uh, US, uh, Soil Conservation Service, mm-hmm. uh, how do we now respond in the future knowing that's not going to go away, but we've got tools we can mitigate that. Um, but that's always going to be part of that challenge. And so certainly I think going back to this quilt image, the mm-hmm. more we can get, keep these stitches together, the mm-hmm. more resilient to some of these um, uh, invasive species. I mean, that's, that's been shown. So that's going to be helpful, but I would just say that that's going to always be there for mm-hmm. us. And we can't just say that certainly in this the landscapes we work with in the Midwest mm-hmm. is we can't walk away and say, okay, that project's done. Yeah. And so for me, I think recognizing that past my time, that will be a challenge for others. Mm-hmm. So can I think about in terms of how I interact and what I do out in the field as a way to, in a sense, prepare for others that will follow me mm-hmm. in a way that won't quite be quite as heavy duty as when I came and everything was overrun with invasives because it was coming out of the area of planting just for wildlife on these open croplands and that meant in a lot of what we now call invasive species. 
So I would say that would be one challenge, and, and it's not unique to Mary Lee, as you're well aware of, but mm-hmm. I'm thinking in this kind of where I've been a part of over the years and decades and where that's going to go in the future. And that's, it. that's not going to go away. And it's what we call in ecology novel ecosystems. Mm-hmm. These are novel ecosystems. They do not follow the typical trajectory. And I'm speaking not for Mary Lee, but much as I can only speak pretty much from the Midwest, but I think most, at least in North America, that the typical what we call Clemensian theory, a Clemens mm-hmm. of saying plant succession, then you end up back with forest and native trees. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. And so that offers a different challenge, and invasive species are a big driver of that. And then we have this overview of a changing climate Mm -hmm. because the unknown, we know things are changing, how are they going to project? So this whole realm of invasive species I think is a big one. More site-specific I would say for Mary Lee, and this has to do with its history of both its soils and its agriculture, and that has to do with drainage and hydrology. Mm -hmm. And so I find this in this area that we're kind of referring to the heart of Mary Lee more, this landscape area, but I certainly see it in these other parts of the 1,200 acres of these fields, is, um, you know, for these back, once again, after the late 1800s, as drainage occurred significantly in the landscape, a lot of these localized drainage systems, and I'm talking about field tiles, so, you know, the field tiles that are, were buried and then they drain out into these ditches that certainly have their own uh, disturbance issue in terms of hydrology with, you know, flooding and sedimentation, things like that. But more specifically in these fields that have and continue to be drained, these abandoned fields, they, still, they may have native grasses on them now, you know, native plants. But what I'm observing is that there continues to be, as a result, I think, of a breakdown of the hydrology. These fields are fairly well drained to be farmed. But now as these old clay tiles make drains, break down, mm-hmm. they're getting, I think, wetter and wetter. And I'm seeing more and more weed canary grass in some of these areas. And I'm more speaking to areas that we manage at this point just as we, we, are, we define as meadows, mm-hmm. meaning they're old farmland, they're abandoned, we got rid of the invasive woody species, we just maintain herbaceous cover, a combination of some uh, you know, low conservative native species but a lot of non-native species, you know, bromes, grasses, mm-hmm. point. But it's, it's, it's wildlife herbaceous habitat. Mm-hmm. But I'm seeing more and more weed canary grass in these areas that weren't there before. Yeah. And I'm, I, I'm making the connection, I think, to as these draining systems fail, mm-hmm. these subsurface draining systems, they're getting, quote, back to their more original state but the original state was at a time where reed canary grass was not part of the landscapes. And so that's one of the things, I'm not saying troubles me, it's just a challenge that 
I'm trying to figure out and I'm not going to be able to dress, but I can at least reflect to those that follow me and maybe from their own experience they've seen that too to say, I think this is what's happening. You need to be prepared for that. So we can think about change of invasive species, but also plant communities with invasives always there, but also changes in more kind of on-site hydrology mm-hmm. at that point. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a multifaceted uh, thing that you're dealing with already. Um, mm-hmm. And then, yeah, just the, the concept of the novel ecosystem is, is, is interesting and interesting. And mildly terrifying. Well, yeah, and I think it's how you, you know, and and I think you spoke very well at that point. But Mm -hmm. this interesting is, can we as land managers say, okay, this is going to be interesting. In a sense, it's kind of, once again, I I don't think I think of myself as an artist, but Mm -hmm. I've heard people talk about, here's the art part that's based Mm -hmm. on science. What's going to occur? You know, yeah. what's what's going to be created out of our intervention now? Yeah. Again, as humans in, in this realm of what we have quote call restoration, yeah. uh, we're not sure. Exactly. And of course, you know, I certainly am very sensitive from experience. The answer is that we don't our interactions don't make things worse. Mm-hmm or problems we don't foresee. So it's this unknown frontier. And so that's been my experience uh, that I will try some things, but I find that I can learn just as much from small mistakes as big mistakes. Mm -hmm. So when I try something, maybe best based on my own experience, what we call adaptive management, Mm -hmm. Or from colleagues I read about, you know, and hear in conferences or in a, okay, let me try that. But I try it at a, for our context, you know, a small level mm-hmm. to kind of test that out instead of all go in and say, boy, let's give this a try. And you spend the time and energy and say, boy, I learned a lot, mm-hmm. but boy, do I have a mess now. And I think, from my experience, you can learn almost as much by just making a small mistake at that yeah. point. So that's a bit of what you shared, is kind of this misable, this uncertainty mm-hmm. <laughs> one at a time. And so how, how do we be humble about still moving ahead uh, and engaging in a world that's unknown? Yeah, that point. No, absolutely. And uh, you bring up a good point in just... Uh, a couple times now the the idea of restoration and just stewardship like it's not there isn't we have goals in in what what you know we're aiming for and you have ecosystems um, that I'm going to ask you to kind of talk about mm-hmm. like, more specifically in a moment but um, just um, understanding that like the the jobs never going to be done because that human land interaction has has always been there but mm-hmm. it just keeps changing and right. we can't we can't walk away. Right. And I think that's that's a really important thing right. with this and uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so that's where I'm it gives me my heart filled with hope. Mm-hmm. Young persons like yourself and others that want you know, and I 
that you've interviewed, that mm-hmm. they're students of mine, say they, they connect. They're recognizing this is going to be, I'm going to say forever, but intergenerational. And to hand that off, and then your generation are going to learn new things. And probably look back at some of us and say, my goodness, how could they even think that way? At that point? And that's okay. Yeah. That's okay. But I think that's, it's again, kind of part of that Mary Lee's mission in the education to be able to instill that or allow people that ex- discover that. And not all students do. That's not what, I mean, they come from a various perspectives at that point in time in terms of their interest. But for some, say, oh, that's my calling. Mm-hmm and it's going to be a calling that's going to be passed on to another generation and another and another as long as humans are part of this mm-hmm. landscape. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, so, so to, to the landscape and the ecosystem mm-hmm. that um, are part of this, this area that you're working in, mm-hmm. um, could you kind of, uh, I guess, on the, on the art note, paint, paint the picture no, of, those, no. of those ecosystems that you are working in. Certainly, certainly. So, uh, using a bit of that analogy now of kind of painting the <laughs> art, once again, I think we can appropriately use many different kind of word pictures for mm-hmm. that to resonate. To think of that canvas, you know, that I engaged with was not a blank canvas, it was a canvas by virtue of human interactions of families wanting to earn their living working the land with grazing and farming that involved drainage. That was the canvas that emerged and was there as these parcels were purchased and put together uh, by the benefactors uh, of Mary Lee. And so when I engaged them with those, you know, I didn't have this kind of understanding that we're talking about. This is a, a you know, I, I've got technical training and it's enforced resources management, active engagement, so I felt comfortable with that. But, but starting to learn to understand differences in some of these type of uh, agricultural impacted landscaping, landscapes. And so, um, you know, one significant one is uh, what we call the Edwards Wetland. In this area, if we would look back into glacial or uh, geological time, post-glacial, this area is actually a back bay of what was the original glacial lake. Mm -hmm. And then with drainage became, as you mentioned, High Lake, because it's near High Lake. But this part was actually part of Bear Lake, and so these two of these three lakes that are on the landscape are mere mud puddles now after the drainage. And so what we call the the Edwards Wetland historically was a tamarack bog, kind of a back bay, and it's actually, as I looked in the kind of the human literature of of settlers here, they used to call, call it Lost Bay. So it was kind of back around the corner, but, you know, the topography such that it was always a bog and a tamarack bog at this point. So when I would have come to that, that, that area had been abandoned in farming. There was still a drainage ditch, a uh, regulated drainage ditch that began there and then drained into what is now Bear Lake. And so within that context, uh, 
you know, this was 25 years ago, and it was at that point, this understanding of wetlands aren't all bad, <laughs> they're not all mosquito-driven, and so that was kind of the, at least, uh, kind of, how do I say, structurally, using an ecological terms, kind of the easiest pickings, mm -hmm. because if we could, as you're well aware, in the Midwest, generally, if we alter the hydrology, on a site that already has soils that are hydric, meaning they were originally formed under water, i.e. this prior drainage is glacial lake, if we alter the hydrology or restore it back a bit pre-farming, just add water, mm -hmm. and they come. Native plants, native plants for native animals. Now, we've, we've mentioned the invasive issue, mm -hmm. and that's, that's certainly part of that. Uh, aspect of it. But that was probably, and I've gathered other landscapes like that, and you can look at the windows here of the first wetland restoration, the Kessling restoration. That certainly kind of was the easiest picking in terms of changing the composition and also the structure of that part of the landscape. And so ecologically, we think of landscapes of kind of three pieces. The composition, this goes back to the artwork. I'm not an artist, but people, artists talk about what's the composition of the painting. Mm -hmm. And from what I'm understanding, that means the stuff in mm -hmm. it. And then there's this concept of structure. And so how is it arranged? And so in the context of this wetland, we began to have native wetland plants in, and then animals that would follow, many times waterfowl. But it just so happened part of this wetland had been, uh, when it was previous farmed, had been um, uh, abandoned, and plant succession was occurring, and there was a lowland hardwood forest under it. Point. Well, by the time I put water on that, and drove the oxygen out of the uh, soil, those trees died. But the wood ducks and the red-headed woodpeckers love it. And so that's changing the structure physically. The challenge is, and ecologists recognize this, is this third part is the function. So it looks wet. It's providing wildlife habitat. It's Good function, it is providing uh, stormwater storage because we're up in the upper part of the watershed of the South Branch, the Elkhart River. But it likely, from what I know, isn't truly functioning like it used to. Mm -hmm. And that's, I understand, is kind of the holy grail of <laughs> ecosystem restoration is we can kind of put the pieces looking back together. Plants and animals and maybe even structurally different levels of horizontal and vertical range, but is it really functioning like it used to? Mm -hmm. And so that's an open-ended question, you know, and I'm not sure if it ever will give, given this day and age, novel ecosystems. So I use the Edwards wetland as a good template because it's, number one, kind of easy pickings. <laughs> People have done that. I've got a number, about 100 acres of, of wetland restoration at that point of time. Uh, the next uh, one that became longer term is what was an upland adjacent farmland, heavily eroded slopes, clay, clay loam slopes with some sand ridges on that. 
And that's been, I would contend, is my longest quote project, knowing we can't walk away from it, uh, as we talked about. But that was heavily uh, run over by invasive shrubs, and it was moving into a woody succession with some native trees. And looking at that and just recognizing, I said, you know, here's an area I'm prepared to work at. I've got some years of my life here, I can see, uh, in the decades ahead, to move it into a herbaceous stage, but native. And so as I worked in this area um, and removed all the woody vegetation, I did note that there's some black oak coming up, and they're about 12 foot tall. And I said, you know, I'm going to hold on to those black oak now. I'm going to flag them and hold them. This project from removing all of the woody vegetation, then really working at treating the herbaceous old field vegetation, most of it non-native, to then planting it with native prairie type of like plants, which ended, that, that planting occurred about five years ago, and we burned it now once or twice now. That's been a 25-year project. And so those 12-foot black oak now make up a savanna edge. But I wasn't sure if that's what it was going to turn into. Mm -hmm. I was familiar with the term savannas 25 years ago, but I thought about those in Africa. Uh -huh. But since those times, this understanding of savanna in, in the context of the Midwest, of oak savanna, in the context of our soils, it's black oak savanna here at Mary Lee, uh, is now that's emerged into what we call the Edwards savanna at that point. Now that's adjacent to this wetland at this point. So we would have had that. That's kind of the longest term project I've had of about 25 years. That's adjoining then another area that was farmland that once again was easy pickings in that was soybean field we, uh, and we planted it to native species of tall grass prairie at that point, kind of on a sand, sand ridge that overlooked the historic lake. And that's adjacent now to what I had filled in between the wetland and this prairie of this Edwards savanna at this point of time. So you had mentioned, you, you described in context this being north edge of High Lake. I think one of the most interesting projects as part of stitching this together is then working between this um, uh, more savanna area uh, that I really developed. It wasn't historically savanna, but I maintained this black oak to allow that and this prairie, 20 acre prairie area that is cropland, as we move south to High Lake is recognizing now on these sand ridges, and these are actually ancient sand dunes mm -hmm. formed just post-glaciation, there was a stand of that, what I would term closed canopy forest. It was made up of mostly black oak, white oak, a few hickory. That's where I could use a little bit of my more classical training in forest resources and understand the soils 
and then start to do a little bit of examination and say, you know, besides Savannah, there's starting to be this understanding of this ecosystem that's not herbaceous, it's not Savannah where they're just open space trees, kind of a park-like stand, mm -hmm. and it's not really closed canopy forest as we think about most forests that we just call forest. Mm -hmm. But to look at this area and look at these, the forms of the trees, the species, and say, this area used to be much more open than it was. Mm -hmm. And by virtue of lack of disturbance, in this case, fire, mm -hmm. it emerged and succeeded into an oak history closed canopy forest with an understaged story of shade tolerant, more mesic mm -hmm. species. And my graduate work is in oak ecology. So that really resonated. I was understanding what was happening. So during that time, as I connected with my colleagues in the uh, Indiana State Nature Preserve System, because part of Mary Lee is actually designated State Nature Preserve, and this was actually going to be part of it that we entered into it. I just said, here's my ideas. Have you guys thought about this? They said, you know, one of us has been looking at this. And I, I'm not even a sure name because I can't remember. I think he's retired. But I said, I'm going to start on this forest is I'm going to start to remove all the understory, shade-tolerant species starting at the lower kind of level and then remove all the mid-story species and then remain and keep the overstory species that were mostly oak species, mm -hmm. black and white, some hickory, a bit of uh, a bit of black cherry and soft maple that would come into these kind of things, especially uh, shade tolerant soft maple. And then as I learned more about this ecosystem called an oak woodland mm -hmm. ecosystem, so it's a little more shade canopy than a savanna. Then I could pull out my handy forestry tool called a densiometer that I can look at and I can calculate the canopy cover. And as I did reading of emerging science recognizing that, yeah, the canopy cover ranged kind of for, there's this understanding of these open oak woodlands that was less than a closed canopy forest, but more than an oak savanna point. And so that's probably been one of the most um, fulfilling projects because it was, in a sense, really emerging and understanding. And I could bring my classical training and graduate work and say, I understand what's happening in these. I just didn't have language yet to call it an oak woodland. Mm -hmm. But that was the term starting to emerge. Now I recognize uh, my colleagues up in Michigan from mm -hmm. when I work sometime, I think they just kind of mix up Savannah and mm -hmm. oak woodland. They call it all Savannah. Uh, mm -hmm. And I'll, I'll leave that statement in that. <laughs> but uh, at least in my reading and to point. And so here is this another ecosystem that now is connected to this prairie the savanna areas that I've developed, and there are some historical savannas I've also worked at. Mm -hmm. But now this has built out another little different ecosystem than what was there at that point. And what really, as I did some research on it, what really intrigued me is this is one of two spaces at Mary Lee 
The other, a similar type of setting, kind of a bluff overlooking a, 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 a lake here apparently also, where they have archaeological um, uh, evidence of Indian summer camps here with the Potawatomi, Miami. We're right at this inner inner engagement of the Potawatomi in Miami right here in this point. And so as I looked back in those archaeology things back in the early 1920s where they still showed signs of kettle pits, and to recognize this site was inhabited, this point, this high point that was surrounded on three sides by glacial remnant lake and lowland was a summer camp of Native Americans. And it would intuitively make sense it was much more open and they probably used fire, and it seems like that's part of that story at that point. So, I would describe one more, well, even two more elements, but one more engagement, if you like. As we get closer to, now from the woodland, driving right down to the nearby shoreline of High Lake, this gets down back into this, I talk about liminal space, mm -hmm. where it's not wet on the, and it's not dry, it's this in-between. And looking at that small track and landscape that was all filled in with brush, some of it native dogwood, a lot of glossy buckthorn invasive species that I know in Michigan is really a challenge. Mm -hmm. We haven't had as much issue, but I could see a problem here is I said, you know, I'm just wondering this space that that's filled, if I remove that and open it up to sun, could I develop a sedge meadow? Mm -hmm. Because here is one of the very, very few areas at Mary Lee that is along a lake, edge of a lake, that is either not in two conditions. One had been farmed in the past, right up to the lake and heavily disturbed. Or number two, maybe it never it got drained, but it never got farmed. But after drainage stopped, you know, and all the farm just natural, and it's all woods, which is great having woods right up at the lake at this point. But here was a place that was never farmed, and it wasn't just filled in with woods. I mean, there was shrubs and brush. And so by my working with a colleague of mine over in um, just to the east of here, with a, a contractor. Uh, we were able to uh, ecologically, sensitively remove all the brush, and over the past couple of years, a wonderful sedge meadow has developed along that lake. Species that are no other place at Mary Lake. Mm -hmm. Just at this spot, it's not big, it's not big, but here's an area that goes within a very short distance of a less than 100 yards from lake to sedge meadow, so kind of the wettest area, you would typically think at Mary Lee Lake and now Sedge Meadow, very quickly up to the driest, these sand dune ridges that is, is Oak Savannah. Mm -hmm. So there's wonderful, and so we've got monitoring transects that students do, both for education and monitoring. There's wonderful engagement with these two very unique ecosystems mm -hmm. that are at this range of very hybrid and very sick area at that point. So that's another block in this quilt <laughs> mm -hmm. that, again, I wouldn't have imagined and understood until about 
again, less than 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. said, There's something here I think I could appropriately engage in. Uh, the last I'll note, and it's adjacent to that, uh, Mary Lee, the north end of High Lake, which we're talking up there, with drainage, dropped the lake level in this area about six to nine feet, up to 10 feet some places at that point. But there's one area that we call the, the High Lake Lowlands, and in the center of that, that area never got dried enough to farm. Mm -hmm. Now, they ran cattle through it, but right in the center of it was still a remnant of a bog, a tamarack bog. And recognizing, yeah, in Michigan they're more common, but boy, we're getting pretty close to the south edge mm -hmm. of that kind of northern community. And I recognize that we go to a county south of here, there's some, but very isolated. Mm -hmm. So that has been my next work, and there's been quite a bit of study in there. Uh, so historically, with plant back in the 60s when Mary Lee was put together, Pink Lady Slipper was in there. Marsh cranberry, bogberry, you know, all, all kinds of bog plants. But by virtue of it being dried out in the vicinity and, and, and uh, lowland hardwoods growing around, that started to shade out. So that's, I'm over the past couple of years starting to do a little work to open it up a bit, mm -hmm. but it's definitely adaptive management. Yeah. It's to say, now what's going to happen? Is it all going to be just brush and brambles? with sunlight in this kind of conditions? Or do we start to see some things emerge that we have records of that disappear at that point? That project I won't finish, <laughs> but I wanted to start on it. Yeah. And that's kind of this edge of the quilt, edge of the point in terms of this landscape here that has its own unique feature at that point. So, uh, I'll kind of stop describing the quilt as we strip together, but if you have specific questions you want to go on to, but I, I think they will, I, I do case on that. Yeah. So. No, that, that is a wonderful, yeah. uh, a wonderful tapestry there. And I can't help but, like, while you were talking about this, the changes in, in all of those systems and what you did to to either bring that sedge meadow out or um, rehab the old woodland, um, the I think one of the biggest lack of disturbances that probably brought about those changes that you're bringing, that you're kind of reversing, mm -hmm. is, is fire. Right, right, yeah. right, right. And so some of these upland ecosystems with these drier, right, right, we'd engage in that point. So, you know, when I think about that, that landscape there, I'm just trying to think proportionally, we would probably put fire on that on about half, yeah, about half of that landscape mm -hmm. would be fire dependent. You know, with the woodland prairie, there's another little, what we call the, the cane woodland, a little mm -hmm. glacial cane, never farmed, but I know a bit of the history that we're still working at. And, a, and more of a wet meadow mm -hmm. where at least there have been records of Mossasaga record of stakes prior to my time here and we want to maintain that and so that will be a new place that we've kind of part of this quilt 
a little different, but that we'll want to try to put fire on if it's not too wet this spring. So, yeah, so that is that disturbance aspect that, as you point out, has not had that for a long, long time at that point. Very interesting, and uh, I, yeah, I mean, just to again look at looking at the map of, of Mary Lee, and then um, also like the soils map, and just like you can get kind of an idea for for the variety. But, yeah. Um, yeah. But right. I I love your your descriptions of, of these places, and uh, just right. um, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I I will just state you mentioned soils and and but you kind of highlighted it again, a uh, point. That's really what attracted and caught the attention of the benefactor mm-hmm. of Mary Lee. Lee Reith was a civil engineer. He built roads. His, his business built the interstates in the Midwest. Okay. So he's from Purdue graduate. So he knew looking for gravel deposits. He knew landscapes and soils and looking for gravel. And when he was investigating this area, and the soils, he said, these things are different. Mm-hmm. The diversity, now, they have, and we, it's part of Mary's, one of the reef pits, an 80-acre kind of uh, outholding, um, but it's part of Mary Lee property, and some older pits that were just uh, local farm pits that were county-used point. But I'm glad you kind of highlight, because that's really what he said, this is something different the diversity of soils, and he was wise enough to bring a colleague in that he had connected with, a, a Purdue University professor, Linz, Alton Lindsay, mm-hmm. well-regarded and known as one of the fathers of, of Indiana conservation and ecology. And Alton said, you got something here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I understand it's been farmed and disturbed down in these bogs and stuff. So it was that pair of them, based on soils and their response, that said, this is different. Yeah. I had no idea about that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Cool. so it, it really began with a civil engineer wow. looking for gravel pits, but yeah. had enough understanding and appreciation and love for natural system or nature, at least they would call it. Um, one, one question I, I enjoy asking folks, though, kind of stepping away from specifically what you've worked on mm-hmm. um, just as far as ecological restoration and I feel like you've, you've really kind of touched on it um, but like to you I mean outside of like the hard hard written definition of what ecological restoration is <laughs> whatever that is yeah, right, I understand what you're talking who, yeah, yeah. people in the community, like you said, know what you're talking about, yeah. but to kind of, yeah. yeah. Right. Uh-huh. So, like, if you were to say what, um, what, what does it mean, like, to you personally? Yeah. What, what is right. it in your heart? Sure. So, I would speak from my experience of a faith tradition. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's, that would inform my faith. Mm-hmm. And so, for me and my faith tradition, reconciling, the ministry of reconciliation between people and heaven's love, given what we've gone through the past couple you know, weeks and months, we need that. But reconciliation of people and the creation and the monk creation, that for me, given my faith context, mm-hmm. it's 
It's participating in a ministry of reconciliation. And that's reconciling people with their creation. And also vice versa. Because I think it becomes hand in hand. That's really what I, for myself, this is a call. And I claim in in context, especially as I speak to people that would have faith traditions, I said, I think from as I reflect back, I think I was created for this, do this, as I look back on my trajectory at that point. So that's not a scientific way of defining it. And so uh, to me, given my, it's a transcendent way. And I realize for some persons, if it's not knowable, if it's not describable at a point, then it's not, quote, real. From my experience that I see, I would differ with that perspective, saying I love to understand and to know, but there's something beyond and something transcendent. And then with my faith tradition, it's a call to reconciliation with neighbors, with community, with the world, and that means all of the created order at that point. That's beautiful. <laughs> uh, I, well, um, share and I realize for some they may take it maybe a different direction for me I'm not sure if we're here to save the world I think once again from my faith tradition I would say there would be my God and Jesus saves the world but we're here to be partners and I say I think we're here to act faithfully and that doesn't have to be faithful to a spiritual call that's not your realm or religious call but your inner sense of what, what am, I, am I acting faithfully? And so that is a long-term process in terms of just from generation to generation. Again, we can look in the biblical Christian Judeo and look at the stories of our forefathers and mothers acting faithfully. But I want to broaden that and say, for generations, act faithfully. What are you called to, and be faithful to that. In, in a, again, it doesn't have to be a spiritual sense. For some, it might be a point. And that's why I said I think that gives me hope interacting with somebody like yourself and knowing a bit of your background, the students. I'm very hopeful. Doesn't mean we're going to solve the problems. Mm-hmm. But I said, to me, that's not my job to save the world. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's how I would provide a perspective at this point in my life. And I'll always continue to learn moving on. That's awesome. <laughs> um, again, yeah, thank you so much, Bill. Um, again, thank you. Many thanks again to Bill for taking the time to meet with me and my mic. For more information on Mary Lee and the work Bill does, I've included links 
to the Mary Lee website on the Midwest Duration page for this show at MidwestDuration.com. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for more Midwest Duration.